When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's Tuesday, September 14th, and welcome to this week's edition of Terry's Talking. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, and I am joined, as always, by Terry Pluto, award-winning sports writer, author of the upcoming book Vintage Browns, and author of the 2002 book Weaver on Strategy, the classic work on the art of managing a baseball team. I had no idea you wrote this until I looked at Amazon and it popped up. Actually, and that is a reprint. (laughs) of the book that was originally done in 1982. Is that right? And it was was a 2002 reprint. Yeah. uh, The cool thing is Dan Duquette, when he was running the Red Sox and then later the the Orioles, he ordered a bunch of copies for all the people in his player development system. Interesting to kind of spread the culture around. Yeah. Well, he admired Weaver and, and, you know, Weaver was sort of the early money ball guy. Um, I mean, Earl Weaver invented the stats of uh, what a hitter bats against a certain pitcher. Before Earl Weaver was kind of straight platoon, then went back to Casey Stengel. Um, and what it came about, because I covered the Orioles in 79 for the Baltimore Evening Sun. So I learned all this and I became fascinated. He said, they're watching this game and it goes, no one, Ryan, he's just, just shoving the bats. He got real profile. Yeah, they couldn't hit because but Mark Belanger would go up there and hit doubles in a gap or whatever he goes, that guy couldn't hit me. And he's hitting Nolan Ryan. So he had, they had, you know, a PR intern look it up and found something like Belanger was like eight for 17 against Nolan Ryan. And the light goes on for Weaver because I bet there's other stuff like that. So he started having them like their next opponent, they would just go through, even if it's the last two years of box scores or whatever. So by the way, Weaver didn't even keep this a secret. He would tell us beat guys, here's the stats. He would tell a player before a game, like he would go up to a player like uh, Pat Kelly's in the lineup that day. Remember, uh, played briefly with the Indians and that goes, well, you know, you're, uh, uh, you know, we're we're, we're facing Gidry today. And, um, you know, you're six for 19 against him. That's over 300. And just kind of planted in his head that that's what you do. Huh. And it's it's crazy because Earl Weaver, when people think of him, the first thing they think of is him running out to confront umpires and getting in their yeah. face and having these epic arguments with umpires. And you hardly ever hear people talk about Earl Weaver, Earl Weaver, the statistician, the yeah, sabermetrician. And yeah. Early, you know, Paul E. Podesta, heck, he's got nothing on Weaver. That's <laughs> I mean, right. And he's I mean, in the Hall of Fame. Was, and, yeah, yeah, right. So it is. And, and also, uh, I mean, he was phenomenal to listen to he's a storyteller and 
And I was also kind of a new young audience for him because he'd been managing a long time by then. But, it, you know, it, it was remarkable. In a lot of ways, they ran that thing like the Indians now, you know, strong farm system, not a lot of money, pitching dominated, uh, early analytics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he used all this platooning in the outfield. Uh, and one more, like a John Lowenstein, or who, whom he called Lowenstein, I may add. He used to butcher names. Um, so the Indians get, he was with the Indians. He's the guy that batted exactly 242 in three of the four years at one point with the Indians. I mean, it's one of those, you can't try to do it. So he comes to the Indians, I mean, comes to the Orioles, and they put him in this platooning thing with Gary Renicky. And, and now all of a sudden he's sitting 285, you know, that. And I said to Weaver one day, I said, you know, why don't you play Lowenstein more? He goes, well, if I played Lowenstein as much as you want me to play bleeping Lowenstein, he would go back to being the bat in the bleeping 242. <laughs> Lowenstein should be kissing my butt. I'm going to make him score more money by doing this. And he was right. Yep. Ahead of his actually, time. The players will tell you some of the stuff about Weaver that was annoying is most of the time he was right and he was arrogant about it. Yep. He never was shy about letting you know he was right either. Yes, he would yep. tell you. Yep, absolutely. That's great stuff. All right, Terry, so you're back from Kansas City. I I was talking to you yesterday um, when you got back from Kansas City. You said you ran into some Browns fans along the way who said that Arrowhead was quite an experience for them. And it sounds like it was something. The people were really nice. That's what they said. He goes, well, when they got, he goes, they were so loud during the game. Kind of a chance for, they want the Browns fans to rise up and do the same because, and they they were on their feet a lot. The place just shook. And it is one of my favorite places to go because it reminds me of Cleveland, Buffalo, you know, that, those type of places. And it was a factor in the game because you look at that one. I mean, I would just went through uh, some stuff or writing some scribbles for Wednesday, but you know, the Browns to their credit on offense, they didn't have any false starts or whatnot, but they also couldn't do any cadence or things like that to try and draw Kansas city off sides. They had to go pretty basic snap counts. Now, Andy Reid insists that the crowd has something to do with messing up the whole timing between the center snap to Jamie Gillen and him dropping it. True or not, I don't know, but um, a wise old coach also knows, let's keep the fans pumped up and give them credit for a messed up punt. That's right. But he might have been right. I don't know. I mean, it looked like it hit him in the hands, but if he's thinking something else, who knows? Yeah, well, and anybody who thinks the fans don't have an impact, I mean, Miles Garrett was talking after the game about how he tries to time the snap count, and and if you're on the other side of that and the crowd is going crazy and you can't hear your offense's snap count, that's got to be a detriment. So it, it works on he, both sides he, of the ball, and yeah. He jumped twice, Clowney jumped once. You know, they I think they only have five or six penalties, but um, those are the kind, you know, from a real positive standpoint, and there were a lot of them, but the fact that they were able to have one drive of 81 yards and three drives of 75 yards, all for touchdowns in Kansas city, where you have to use basic snap counts and all that uh, is pretty phenomenal. That, that it shows that this offense could, I just think it'd be terrific. Yeah. And, and you know, it was interesting. Kevin Stefanski was asked yesterday during his uh, availability. Can you take any positives out of this? Any moral victories? You know, you guys can play with the chiefs down the road. And Kevin Stefanski's answer was no. It was no. a one-word answer, and he he's just shut it nice down like we didn't Bel- win. Yeah, David doesn't. He's a nice Belichick. He's, he's the same <laughs> way, you know. He's just not as rude about it. Um, I see a T-shirt. Yeah. I see yeah. a T-shirt coming down the yeah. line right the now. Nice Belichick. Nice Belichick. 
Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get any more out of him. Uh, what's wrong? What was the foot? Yeah. Odell Beckham, I think will be, you know, day to day in Cleveland until he leaves Cleveland or whatever goes on. I mean, that's, you know, that's just how, how he kind of looks at it. But I, I'm looking here um, at uh, what he said about Baker uh, and Baker throwing the interception. Hold on here. I'm going to read it. Uh, well, for like, this is classical. What about uh, Harrison getting to the fight with the coach? They both should have been ejected. He goes, well, those type about, will he be disciplined? Well, those type of things we keep eternal. But it's disappointing when he was a starter five plays in the game. You know, it's the oldest thing in football. Officials always see the second guy. We got to show more poise than that. <laughs> I can completely hear Belichick saying yeah, that. Right. right. Right like that, yeah. Uh, here was another one. You know, Baker did a nice job operating in a very tough environment. But, you know, ultimately, he has to take care of the rock. You got to throw it away there. I know he's trying to throw it away, but he's got to find a way to get an incompletion for us. <laughs> That's Belichickian, you know. So when he does talk about football, it's like, as you said, no. I, you know, Baker did get hit from behind and he was trying to throw away, but in the end he did. Right. And I so think let, let's talk about that play real quick, Terry. So I was really struck. I was listening to some of the post game and the fans could not wait to call in. And one of them said, I'm done with Mayfield. He can't win the big game. I'm like, it's, number, it's week one. Number two, the guy had a heck of a game. I think his quarterback rating was 115 points something before that yeah. last pass. Uh, you know, yes, he either needs to take a sack there or an incompletion or something and not have the, the interception. But I, I was just really struck by how fast people are just jumping off, you know, the bandwagon for a quarterback who went, who led an 11, five, 11 and five team last year. He's there every week and was having a heck of a game before that last play. I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I, other than I just want to vent and no matter who the quarterback is, I hate him I mean, that, that, until I win a Super Bowl. I think there's a little bit of that, uh, but I mean, Baker's really good and I'm not saying great, but he's really good. He showed he could take you to the playoffs. He had to beat Pittsburgh that how many times have we had a Cleveland team that had to kind of win a game at the end of the year against a team that maybe wasn't going all out. They lost it anyway. Mm -hmm. Remember they beat the Steelers in week 16 and Mason Rudolph and all that. And then they went into their place and beat them again. And that, says something about this team and Baker. And I also think the reason uh, Stefanski is going to really cut them no slack is he smells greatness with the team and he wants to drive them to that. You know, and so this really is a no excuse uh, environment he's trying to create, but Baker is good. Dave, you know, they protected him pretty well. Let's start with that. Secondly, you got the running backs but he's, he's in a system that just makes sense for him with the play actions and the rollouts there. And these guys are fun to watch in this offense, by the way, that's part of the NFL. You have to have a certain amount of entertainment factor and they are wild to, to me. I think this year, the Browns were entertaining last year, but I think it's going to go up another level, not just with the winning, but the, the big plays and all this we're going to see. Yeah, you know, I, I was going to see, maybe we should do a post on that this week. And my question, I don't know if the answer is yes, but are the Browns the most entertaining, entertaining team in the NFL right now? And maybe you could probably put the Chiefs ahead of them. But you mm -hmm. look look at that lateral they ran on the last play of the first half. I mean, that is fun to watch. And I was looking uh, today, the TV ratings came out. There were 19.5 million people who watched that Browns-Chiefs game on Sunday. That's a huge number. It was CBS's second most watched week one game since 1998. 
So, I mean, yes, the Chiefs were the Chiefs were the star attraction, but like they have to play somebody. I thought the Browns played an entertaining brand of football and it was a really compelling game. By the way, it just shows the numbers you can get on TV from middle America when you have an entertaining product. Yep. And, you know, Baker has a national following, too. Um, not like quite back to homes, but I've looked, by the way, David, I'm just going to say, I've looked at that Mahomes pass to uh, Tyreek Hill and John Johnson, but I want to know, what did you make of that play? I've looked at that thing like five times. Well, it's, if you've ever played backyard football and you're one-on-one with somebody, it is hard to cover somebody. And I just think John Johnson got turned around and he wasn't expecting the ball to go where it was going to go. And once the pass came down and he'll caught it, it was over. Like there was no help around yeah. and the play was over. And it was just one of those, like you're out in the park playing with your buddies three. If you're playing three on three, I mean, John Johnson was playing one-on-one back there mm-hmm. and he got turned around and the ball dropped down and there was nothing he could do. It was just kind of a fluke play. And I know he was upset about it, but that's the kind of thing that happens when you're playing the chiefs. Right. And also David is that um, Mahomes is rolling to his right. Now, if you're back there as a safety and you're thinking he's rolling to his right, he's probably going to throw it more towards the right sideline than the middle of the field. So he's, I, I watched it. I kind of slowed it down. He's going that way, which is they sort of like favor him that way. But then he just turns around and fires it the other way. And it's sort of sharp. Now he's turned. Now Johnson's looking at Hill. He has no idea where the ball is. He just knows Hill's going the opposite way. I'm in trouble. And as you said, it's like in the backyard football with the pass, though, that went in an unexpected direction because conventional wisdom is if you're rolling right, especially in a scramble situation like that was not a set play. That's probably where the ball's going to go. Yeah. And, and he didn't even get all of his body into that throw either. That was the other I, thing that was, I, I'm sure, threw, threw, threw him yeah. off in the, in the back there with Johnson when he was it's trying to defend that. Yeah. Mahomes. I don't know how he doesn't make turnovers. Yeah. He, he's amazing. He's, he's really a marvel to watch. So. All right, um, so you went into there. I mean, let's let's look. And I, by the way, I, I want, go ahead. Ask your next question. And I'll, no, I'll, no, I was just kind of. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the the um, the running game and and setting up the run versus the pass. And what did you think of the Browns' mix and kind of the tempo of the offense in terms of using run run to set up pass it. or pass versus run? I love that there were about 50-50 run pass, <laughs> long drives, which is what you want. 81, 75, 75, 75. I loved it all, but, and I just think that just because the new NFL wisdom is that you want to kind of have this pass goes first and then the run, this is sort of more of an old fashioned team with the strong offensive line, the big time running backs. Um, so play to your strength. Of course you throw the ball, but man, you, when you start pounding away, how about this stat? According to pro football focus, Nick Chubb caused Kansas city to miss six tackles. The entire Browns defense missed four. Huh. Did you notice the tackling was pretty good when they finally it was. It's a far cry from last year and the year before. Yeah. Yeah, And that's where I think the speed did help. So they were able to bring them down. Yeah. So just like you were talking about the run pass mix, uh, Baker was 21 of 28 passing for 321. He had a 97.5 uh, rating. Nick Chubb, 15 carries for 83, 5.5 average. And then Kareem Hunt was six carries for 33. He also had a 5.5 average. Overall, the Browns had 26 carries and 21 and 28 passing attempts. So you're right, right about 50-50, which I, I think is the formula. If you ask Kevin Stefanski, that's probably what he wants the formula to be, right? 
you know, you got 29 points and maybe you say you got to go in the thirties to beat the chiefs, but um, it was, it was just impressive and they made all their extra points. And I know you wrote, wrote about this on Sunday as we wrap up our Brown segment here, bottom line, after this game, you feel the Browns are fill in the blank. Good. They're a really good team and just let's just watch, relax and enjoy it. Uh, and then also let's give the defense some time to uh, come together. They had eight new starters. Um, and the, yeah, they, I mean, they're talented, but it's just one of the things that have helped the Browns offense this year is those guys, they looked like they're in, in full gear because they're all back. All of them, every single guy with the exception of Schwartz, I think who played on offense was, um, with the team last year. And they all know the offense. Yep. And that makes it easier. Inside and out. Sure does. All right, let's wrap up this Brown segment. Uh, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk some Indians. We've got some Hey Terry questions that we're going to take. And we will do some Terry's trivia to wrap it up. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. All right, we're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto in this week's edition. Let's talk a little Indians, Terry. Um, Let's talk about some of the trades the Indians have made. And I know this is something you've been tracking about their really good success that they've had trading guys at the right time, getting good return, bringing in some young prospects. Um, I guess one of the ones we should go into is the Cesar Hernandez trade. And a lot of people were a little surprised that that happened, but it seems like um, that was one of kind of the trademark deals of the, of the summer so far. What do you think of that one so far? Well, they, I think they smelled that something was going on with Cesar going in the wrong direction and, he was sitting like 220 when they traded him. He's sitting 211 since the trade, you know, not done. And he's with the White Sox. They're in, you know, playoffs coming and certainly not a lack of motivation. Um, and he has a, I think a five or $6 million option for next year. And he probably would like to play well enough to have Chicago pick that up. So uh, they got a guy named Connor Pilkington for him. And, you know, Pilkington uh, right now at double A Akron, he's three and one with a 214 ERA. Overall in double A, he's seven and five with a 301 college pitcher. And so, you know, you frankly remember they want to load up with pitchers. You could tell that in the draft and everywhere else. So never trying guys out of second base. I don't know who's going to play there next year, but it wasn't going to be Cesar Hernandez anyway. Yep. All right. Here's a guy that the fans gave up on long before the Indians did Jordan yeah. Luplo. Yeah, uh, they sent they sent him along. The fans were very happy when that happened. What do, what do you see in that one? Uh, he's hit two fifty five with three homers with Tampa Bay. I actually forgot about him. It was so strange because I looked up Peyton Battenfield. That's the guy they got for him because I was looking at the double A roster, and I go, "How the heck did they get him from Tampa Bay? Who did they give up?" And actually, it was uh, Jordan Luplo, who you know you also he's like an ankle injury waiting to happen too. But anyway, Peyton Battenfield. Seven and one with a 217 ERA overall in double A and Akron, it's two and one with a 211 ERA. So, this guy, you know, th these are two legit pitching prospects, college pitchers who can, you know, really develop quickly. So, it's a, to me, you know, you make those trades over and over again. Yeah, especially with the Indians' emphasis on college guys, it's um, yeah. they've seen that pay off over and over. All right, Phil, Phil Maton and Yaner Diaz. For Miles Straw. Yeah. Well, Mayton, you know, we saw he pitches all the time, sort of okay. His ERA is 372 with uh, the Astros and uh, 
Yonder Diaz, the Indians told me when they traded him, go, go, this guy will probably end up being a major league catcher. He said, since the trade, he's hitting like 365 or something in class A uh, for the Astros, but he's several years away. They have Bull Nayor and they have uh, La Vista, and I forgot the guy's first name, as prospects, catching prospects late, rated above him. And who do they get for him, David? Uh, Miles Straw. You know, like case closed. Yep. Easy one to decide right there. All right. You know, center, the thing that I found, I knew his on-base percentage was good, but it's 372. Uh, the last I looked at, that's best on the team. So you have your fast guy who's 10 for 10 in stolen bases since the trade with a 372 on-base percentage. And I think he's hit like 280 or whatever since the deal. And he plays great center field. And he's tied up for, I don't know, three more years or something like that. And he's fun to watch, and he's a baller. He's kind of like uh, modern-day Lenny Dykstra a little bit. You know, he mm-hmm. loves. You can tell he loves the game, and I think the fans appreciate that. And you, they need a guy in the outfield. They, you just write his name in every day. How many? You know, we can't platoon at every position in the outfield. Yep. Well, he'll be in there for a while, and then Eddie Rosario. Yeah, he's with all with with uh, the Braves. He's at thirty-three at bats and he's got eight hits, and you know, I forgot he was with the team, frankly. I did. I was just kind of looking through those trays right at the end. And they, I forgot who, oh, they got the panda for him. Remember that? Uh, it was a, it was a money thing and the panda's gone and that's it. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about Bobby Bradley. So this guy has been kind of the, the power, the promised power hitter that I think a lot of Indians fans have been waiting for someone who can really uh, hit the ball a long way. Um, bring a lot of excitement. You talk about Earl Weaver. What was his pitching defense and a three-run homer was his motto, yeah. right? The Indians are looking mm-hmm. to get – they've got the pitching. They're trying to get the defense, and now they're trying to add some three-run homers. And Bobby Bradley, I think, has frustrated some fans with just how inconsistent he's been. Um, what do you see for him? You know, the, this season is kind of almost over, but going forward, what do you see in the plans for him? Well, I was looking to see – Well, remember, he got hurt for a while there, but will he cut down his strikeouts? Because at, at the moment right now, uh, you know, Bobby is striking, is striking out. He has 74 strikeouts and 220 plate appearances. So basically that's one every three. Uh, the nice thing is since August 1st, he's come back. Uh, he's batting uh, 263 and he's got only 19 strikeouts and 67 plate appearances. So that's like one every four at bats, you know, and, that's a big deal because part of it, David, is, you know, these guys will come up with guys on second and third base. They got to make some contact. His power is enormous. And when he's really concentrating, just hitting the, like Reyes is the same way. When they both concentrate, and hit the ball up the middle in the opposite field, it just flies off their bat. And when they start pulling their heads and trying to pull it, uh, it seems like they don't just have one bad game. They have a bad week. Uh, and that's what they're with both of those guys try to get more consistency. But if you think about next year, say you have straw leading off Rosario, wherever he plays bat second, you got Jose third, you got Reyes fourth and you got Bradley fifth. That actually is the start of a lineup with three guys capable of hitting 30 homers, you know, with Jose Reyes and Bradley. And I, I really like the speed and athleticism at the top with, 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 uh, Ahmad and with uh, straw. I mean, that's, you know, something to build on. Now you got to, you know, put in a bunch of, you got to find it. Well, the catcher will probably be hedges. So he'll bat ninth. You know, you got to find some more guys in the outfield, maybe Bradley Zimmer or whatnot, but um, 
that to me is a much better looking top of the lineup than where they were at the start of the season. Yeah. At least some players who can inspire some fear in the, oppo- in the opposing pitcher. Mm-hmm. No doubt well, about that. So three, when three or first four or five guys can hit 30 homers um, and Bradley will, I mean, Bradley would hit 30 homers in the minors. It struck it out a million times. It still would, but it's imperative for him just not to be a strikeout machine. So they can just put him at first every day and leave him there. And they need a few guys in the lineup that play all the time. You can't platoon everywhere. Yep. Well, we'll see if they can get to that spot. Um, so what's up with James Karinchak? Uh Very curious case. Came up, had a great start to the season, and now it's just kind of getting, you know, we're in mid-September here. And what's going on? Well, first of all, I said, what's he doing at Columbus? So he went down August 28th. He's yet to pitch. And so I texted somebody at the top of the food chain there um, with the Indians, and I heard they decided there's a problem with his mechanics and that, which you could see that with the way he throws. So before they, they're going to probably pitch him towards the weekend, but they wanted him to make some changes. And my guess is they probably want him to decompress a little bit. They brought, after getting knocked around, they didn't want him to go out like walk three guys in a row in Columbus or something. So they're working with him on that because, you know, he when they had he and Classe going, that was terrific at the top of the. Uh, I'm sorry, at the end of the the uh, bullpen. Uh, but so that I, I just wondered, I, did he get hurt or what? But no, they're retooling the lineup. Yeah, and then a lot of times they'll kind of retool during the off season, bring them back. And it might look completely different when he comes mm-hmm. back in spring training. So, all right, let's do some. Hey, Terry questions. You ready? I guess. <laughs> all right. These are from Terry's Facebook page. If you want to ask him a question, we'll try and get down the show. We'll get as many as we can. And given the amount of time we have. All right. Hey, Hey, Terry, this one's from Mark Newton from Sandusky. Where do you see Ahmad Rosario playing next season? Do you share my fascination with Arias? Is it crazy to wonder if J-Ram and Ahmed will be at second and third next year, one way or another, or Ahmed in the outfield? There's a lot to unpack there. So lots to unpack there. Go ahead. Um, They don't want to get Ramirez off a third, so they'll leave him there. Uh, But I think Ahmed in the outfield, and uh, I mean, they've talked about making him the super sub, but I'm not sure you want to do that with him. And he was working really hard in center field when they made that change. And they came to the guy in the middle of spring training and they said, you, he played, I think one game in the outfield was an emergency situation with the Mets. And that was it. And you're going to play center field. And then they, they started with that. And he was, you know, he had some miserable time in Arizona early on. Then he started to get going and it wasn't great, but he, he could have developed into it, but you got straw now. So I just would, you know, let him work in left field, and and I'm sure he could learn to do it. This guy's athletic, and he loves to play. Um, I, w- I just had no idea what kind of player he was when they got him. I didn't know how hard he plays, and I just sort of ignored that year in 2019 he had with the 15 homers, and he batted 287 and stole like 20 bases, uh, and just the, the impact in his lineup. So that's what I see. Arias, you know, c- could be a short. I, I know they're disappointed in Jimenez. They thought he would come back and hit more because he went down to Columbus and was hitting, but he's back up here. He looks like what he did when he went down. He's right. only like 22 or something, but. All right. Another Indians question. This one is from Charles Michael Botempo. 
of the Indians teams from 1995 to 2007, do you think there'll be any more Hall of Famers? I'm thinking only CeCe. And will there be a Guardian Fever song when the new, when the new nickname goes into effect? <laughs> oh, I, I wonder if we're going to get right guard jokes, too. That's an old thing. For that. Right. Um, um, any more Hall of Famers? CeCe, I'm trying to think of some other guys from that era that might. No. Uh, I voted for Albert every time he was on the ballot all three years, but you know, he's off. I mean, maybe Kenny through the old timers or the, however they call the secondary voting. Um, no, I mean, I don't count like Winfield or those guys that kind of passed through briefly. Right. You know, oral, he didn't quite pitch enough. Uh, I don't think Dennis Martinez, but, but they had, you know, they had several near hall of famers. When you have several near hall of famers, you're very good. Yep. CC's time will come. That's for sure. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. How about right, that? Go ahead. Sorry. That the first time I met him was they had signed him and the Indians uh, sent him to Burlington. And I forgot, I was visiting actually my in-laws in North Carolina who didn't live that far from there. And I went to Burlington because they had Danny Baez and Sabathia there. And Sabathia I found him sitting, they, they announced that he's going to be signing autographs behind the plate. So he's sitting at this car table, you know, in the stands. And I was like, I talked to him for like 30 minutes, like two fans came by to get his autograph. Huh. Like 19, you know, just, he was so nice to like everybody. And, he, and he's always been so nice to everybody. I, uh, my, my CC story, I went to a game. It was a night game, like in June, it started at seven. He pitched a one hitter. It was over by, by eight fifty eight, and it was still light out. Yeah. <laughs> it was a night game. That's how official. Here's something to admire about. And there's a lot to admire about CC. You know, he's dealt with the drinking problems and all kinds of things. But when the Indians traded him to the Brewers with the end of July, now he's going to be a free agent after that season. That was like Matt Laporta and, and Michael Bradley. Michael Brantley, but he pitched every, he, he took three days in between stats starts instead of four to pitch the Brewers into the playoffs. Think of how many guys, I don't think anybody would do that in, even in this era now, you know, say, well, wait, a minute, I'm going to be a free agent. I'm going to go out there and maybe hurt my arm or something. Get out of my thing. He just carried that team to the playoffs. And You're right. You would, you would see a lot of pitchers try and save, yeah, save the wear and tear and they wouldn't. Put and their agents would yeah. go, you can't do this. You can't do this. Yep. All right, let's move to a Browns question. Then we got one on the Cavs. Um, okay. All right, so this is from Ron Kohler from Akron. Hey, Terry, with so many new players on the Browns defense, do you expect a bigger improvement over the course of the season? Better. Sure. It just makes sense that you would. Um, by the way, Greedy Williams played five snaps. That was it. He didn't see a lot of Greedy. And we also – I didn't see a lot of uh, a Newsom getting beat badly or anything like that. So I didn't hear his name called much at all, which is usually a good sign. It's like an it's like an umpire. Pro football focus. I think they were two passes thrown his direction and one caught. But you know, I don't know who was supposed to be covering what and that. But you look at those things, and I would I would think so. They're still trying to figure out what to do with JLK. Um, you know, Malik McDowell really had a good thing to start. I just the if you break down that game, the the offense gave three points away when Chubb fumbled. I believe only his 50th or his fifth fumble in 690 carries. And they, the special teams gave him seven points on the botched punt. So 
you know, I guess you could argue could have forced them to go three and I, I they really didn't give up 33 points on defense. They just didn't. They gave up in the 20s. That's true. That's true. All right. Here's a Cavs question if you're ready for it. This is from Al Mobius. Hey, Terry, would you give up Colin Sexton for Ben Simmons? Is something going on there? Simmons wants out. Is he difficult? Simmons is weird. What do you think of his game, David? I see a lot of potential, and I also see a lot of issues. I mean, the, the Cavs have taken some chances on some guys with high potential that might have issues, and not a lot of them have worked out. Yeah. Um, and you know, you think of just, just in the last couple of years, you know, um, but I think it's a big, it's a big risk to take Colin Sexton, as you know, rock solid shows up every day, comes to work, scores good defensively. I mean, I, straight I, up one-on-one, -on -one, that deal would require a couple number ones too. Philadelphia's got a high price tag on him. I was told this by another executive. Um, Simmons is strange because you get into, you can't make a free throw. And then he stops shooting. And so, but I've had other people say, look, he's an all defensive player, you know, all these things, but he wants to play point guard, but he should play power forward. I guess if you could figure all that out, he's also got a maximum contract that he's into. Um, I mean, what well, straight up for Colin, they probably do it, but that's not going to be the deal. The deal is going to involve draft picks. And right. I'm not sure. I'm going down that road for a guy, a maximum contract guy, as one executive who didn't like him said to me, so you're going to trade a couple of number ones. We're talking hypothetically. And whether it's Sexton or he said, you know, Okora, whoever they want, whatever young player they'd want. And you're going to have a guy that you may have a hard time putting on the floor in the fourth quarter of a close game because he can't make a free throw on a maximum contract. He said, if it goes the wrong way, that's what you got. Or a guy who wants to handle the ball at six foot eleven or seven one or whatever he is. Yeah, I mean, but, I saw yeah. a game last year. He 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 had a wide open baseline drive, went under the basket, had a wide open layup, and didn't take it. No, and kicked, and it, kicked it out to somebody who wasn't open, and they had to work for ten more seconds to get a shot. And on top of that, David, it's not just his lack of three point shooting ability; it's this lack of shooting ability. You know, yeah, it's like he has the yips, like yeah, in golf. Yeah. yeah, 15 footers, 12 footers. I mean, he's got problems. So, um, I mean, the other theory is like he gets out of Philadelphia, he gets away from Embiid, he begins to relax, he shows some of the potential before he's not under the pressure, uh, all that. And that's why I said maybe for sex and him straight up instead of paying sex and all kinds of money, I might do that. But I'm not trading away a bunch of picks for him when I know the team's still not going to be all that good in the next year or two. Yeah. I think that's the way the Cavs are going to think about that too. So, all right. Hey, every week we'd like to put something, uh, a segment in here about your faith column, which is always well received and the host screwed up last week and we missed it. <laughs> so we I want to make sure we got it. Okay. But I thought you asked an interesting question over the weekend. You asked people, what have you learned from a personal level from the pandemic? And you got some really interesting answers. Uh, and you know, the pandemic has changed everybody forever in different ways. What, what were you struck by when you kind of saw some of the responses that you got in terms of how people have been changed personally? I mean, one of them is it's for me personally too. you, the, the whole thing that happened with people in nursing homes and that, that was tough. Uh, and 
where you couldn't see them and you worried about them. And I heard from uh, people in the medical industry. I mean, there they are holding the hand of this loved one who's dying with on FaceTime with the family. And um, I just think the exhaustion that everybody went through. And then, of course, people, marriages kind of went one way or the other on this one. If they were, they were not used to working at home, like I've worked for home for, you know, 30 or 40 years, 190 years, whatever it is. So Robert and I, they're all sat and Robert's like, well, I just kind of work for home. It's no big deal, you know. But for others, it was different. And then you have kids uh, heard about, about, you know, they're trying to teach them. And I think a lot of people felt overwhelmed on so many fronts. Like if there's a sandwich generation where you have kids and you have an older relative and maybe even the person's not in the nursing home, but you can't go see them anyway because everybody was worried about the COVID before the vaccine came out. It was a, you know, it's not as bad as World War II or the depression, but this thing comes in right after that you know, in terms of uh, what we've had since 1900, because it hits you on so many different fronts. And of course, in the middle of the toxic political climate we have, um, the nice thing, some people say just force us to be nicer to each other at home. We got, we got to make this work. Yeah. And there were some, it was interesting to see some positives have come out of it. People said they yeah. started to appreciate other people more and spending, spending more time with them, got them to realize something about somebody that maybe they didn't know before. So that was, that was kind of encouraging to see there have been some positives. Yeah. It's, it's just fun to kind of say, all right, people, what do you think of this and, and get something, something out of it. So um, I'm, I'm still grateful that, you know, people do respond to uh, the faith columns and, uh, and a lot of people write, you know, I don't go to church or I don't go to temple, but I do read that because, you know, it deals a lot with family issues or, and that's the point of it. That's why it's called faith in you. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, uh, let's, let's do doctrine today of whatever your favorite religion is. It's not that. Yep. Or, hey, church politics today. Boy, you want to get into that one. That'll be a <laughs> lot of fun. As if, as if regular politics isn't grim enough. <laughs> so what are you going to do this week for your faith column? You, you got a topic yet? Or are you going to? Yeah, I do. Because uh, there was a thing we did a couple of weeks ago and Heidi Martin. You helped me with that. The professor from Case Western who's had his, her, her mother living with her for the last 17 years after uh, suffering a massive stroke and taking care of her and have some health care. Well, a couple of people wrote me about, you know, I can't do that. And sort of the, the heart wrenching thing of when you have to put somebody in a nursing home. And, and I went through that situation later on with Melva, who's uh, African-American lady. She's not my biological mother, but she is like a mother to a couple of us in the family. And we had to make that call over three and a half years ago with her. Uh, and, you know, she made it through the pandemic. She's 95. So I'm going to write that just because some people, I think, read that column that what Heidi did and felt guilty. But not everybody can do that. Not everybody's a professor at Case Western that can work from home and frankly has the the, uh, the assets to do it and move into her mother's house, which was already paid for to begin with uh, over there in Euclid. So it, it was just different. So I'm going to kind of give voice to if you've had to put some of your family in a nursing home situation or assisted living, you know, if you're doing a good job, keep a track of it. Don't feel guilty. Yeah, that'd be some good perspective. Thanks for, thanks for saying all that. All right. Last, uh, last segment, Terry's trivia. You ready? I didn't tell you what this is going to be. It's going to be a hard one to get. So we talked about Earl Weaver at the beginning, right? Yes. And I was mentioning about how Earl was famous for his arguments with umpires. How many times was Earl Weaver ejected during the course of his managing career? I think it was 80 some wasn't it that's a really good guess 91 and i guess he got tossed he was in a double header one time and got tossed out of both games 
got tossed out at home plate at a game that I was at because he was Ron Luciano. They hated each other. And Weaver was still mad about something the day before, and he went out with the lineup card. And he started saying, you don't know the rules. Before the first pitch, he was tossed. And in Cleveland, there was a notorious thing where uh, it might have been Luciano again, another umpire. We, he insisted they didn't know the rule book. Rules, so he took the rule book out there, ripped it up, threw it up in the air. This was in Cleveland back in 79. So uh, that kind of suspended for a few games. And it was uh, the, the remarkable thing is Bobby Cox passed him in career ejections. Is that right? Yeah, now hardly anybody gets objected. Yeah, you got instant play. replay has robbed us, robbed us of all the good theater. So what are you going to yeah, do? Probably right? has made umpiring a little better, though. So Yeah, probably. All right, that'll wrap up this edition of Terry's Talking. Terry, thanks for finding time today. Good talking to you as always. And everybody out there, have a great week. We will catch you next week on Terry's Talking. <laughs>